Murder on the Music Scene has rebranded. We are now going by the name Mysterious-ish. Join us for Season 2 of Mysterious-ish, where we will be discussing conspiracy theories such as time travel and aliens. Season 2 premieres March 22nd with two new episodes. Murder on the Music Scene contains graphic and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Murder on the Music Scene, the podcast where a music educator and a music enthusiast discuss the deaths of musicians and the mysteries surrounding them. I'm Caitlin. I'm Erica. And today we are going to be discussing the death of uh, Dimebag Daryl. Um, um. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. That's it. We will get to um, the progression of his nickname and why it happened, but um, for now we got to like start at the beginning. Bet. All right. You ready? Let's dive in. Macy, are you ready? Are you ready? Macy's chilling with us in my basement, which I cleansed last night and apparently <laughs> it's not helping. So, um, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Just got demons in my basement. It's What's up, demons? Fine. It's me, your boy. <laughs> Macy is not thrilled with the demons. She keeps staring at one particular corner in my basement and I'm not thrilled by it, but it's fine. All right, here we go. Dimebag Daryl. You ready? Mm. Here we go. Daryl Lance Abbott was born on August 20th, 1966 in Enos, Texas. Enos. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, his mother was Carolyn Abbott and his father was Jerry Abbott, who was actually a country music producer. And he will come back into play quite a bit later. So he also had an older brother named Vinnie Paul. Um, Daryl and Vinny's parents divorced when the boys were in their early teens. They had been married for 17 years, but the boys' home lives remained, quote, happy, whatever the fuck that means. Um, the boys did end up living with Carolyn in Arlington. So a lot of this segment is going to be like me talking about both of them because they are both very heavily involved in each other's lives, like consistently like even after they turn 18 whatever they're still very involved with each other so despite being raised by a country music loving father daryl fell in love with rock and roll and his brother Vinny started playing the drums and daryl thought he would just like try his hand at it you know he, his brother was trying and he wanted to do it too um but Vinny later said quote i just got better than him and wouldn't let him play anymore so Daryl began learning guitar instead. His first guitar was a Les Paul style Hondo. This guitar was gifted to him as a 12th birthday present. When he first got the guitar and couldn't play it yet, Daryl would, this is so wholesome, Daryl would stand in front of the mirror holding the guitar, wearing Kiss style makeup. Mm -hmm. Just hold the guitar and stand there. He wouldn't like play it or anything. Uh, also his dad, Jerry, uh, learned how to play Kiss songs just so he could teach Daryl how to play them. I'm crying. How do I get adopted into this family? Same. Like, can I, can I be an abbot? I just want a dad. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. 
So once Daryl learned the basics of guitar, he and his brother Vinny started doing their own jam sessions. The first one lasted six hours. Um, what did they play, you ask? Kiss. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> they, no. <laughs> they played Smoke on the Water. That's it. I would never guess that. Just six hours of smoke on the water. It's because it's a really easy guitar riff. It's like a staple in learning guitar. It just is. So after they started playing music together, Vinny and Daryl became inseparable. Music just brings everyone together, and I just love it so much. So the boys both drew heavy inspiration from bands like Black Sabbath, Van Halen, Judas Priest, and obviously Kiss. Oh, Daryl was a huge fan of Kiss, so much so that he joined the Kiss fan club, which was called the Kiss Army. And that's so wholesome. He and like his neighbor, like best friend, joined it together. It was so freaking cute. (laughs) So when he was 14, Daryl entered a guitar concert, concert, entered a guitar contest at the Agora Ballroom in Dallas. Uh, one of the judges was Dean Zielinski, who was the co-founder, no, sorry, he was the founder of Dean Guitars. Another wholesome detail, Carolyn had to go with Daryl to this contest because he was not old enough to enter the club on his own. Oh, of course. Uh-huh, because he was only 14. Mm, yeah. But it's like a ballroom, so I don't really get it, but it's fine. So he won this competition. Zelinsky said he, quote, blew everyone away. He won a Dean guitar, but uh, fun fact, his dad had actually bought him a Dean the morning of the competition. So Daryl had only had like a couple hours to practice on it before he like started the competition. Continuing the fun fact train here, Daryl also entered into a bunch of competitions from there on out and he won them all. Um, Another prize was a Randall amplifier. And this amp and his Dean guitar are, quote, two staples of his style and sound. So, uh, you know how I said that he entered, like, a bunch of contests from that point on? Uh, well, he was eventually asked to stop entering them. (laughs) Instead, they wanted him to be a judge. But, um, mostly they just wanted to give other people a fucking shot. Because he was just winning everyone. (laughs) Lol. (laughs) It's fine. When you're so good that they ask you to be a judge instead of entering the competitions. That's the goal. That's the goal. Flash forward to 1981. Vinny and a few of his classmates wanted to form a band. Uh, Vinny agreed to join only if Daryl could join too. Stop. (laughs) I'm crying. (laughs) What a good big brother. I love him. So, Terry Glaze, Tommy Bradford, and Donnie Hart... They were the other members of this 2B band. Um, They weren't sure that this was a reasonable request on Vinny's part because they didn't think that Daryl was very good. Um, They also said that he, quote, was a skinny, scrawny dude. But um, obviously they ultimately allowed Daryl into the band. And so Pantera was born. Pantera. With Vinny Paul on drums, Daryl Abbott and Terry Glaze on guitar, Tommy Bradford on bass, and Donnie Hart on vocals. In 1982, Donnie Hart left the band and was replaced by Terry Glaze, leaving Daryl the primary lead guitarist. Tommy Bradford also left in 1982 and was replaced with Rex Brown. At this point, Daryl had adopted the name Diamond Daryl from the Kiss song Black Diamond. We'll get there. We'll get there, okay? Pantera really started out... As a glam metal band. 
I repeat, Pantera started as a glam metal band. Like, spandex, makeup, big ass hair and all. All of it. I can't. Oh. So, Pantera signed to Metal Magic Records, which was created by the Abbott's father, Jerry. So, Jerry created this this production company just for his sons. So, in 1983, Pantera released their first album, aptly named Metal Magic. Daryl was 16. He was 16. I can't. What am I, what am I doing wrong? I'm 23. Why am I not famous yet? The Texas-based music magazine, Buddy, reviewed this album in November of 1983 and they stated that Daryl's solos quote tend to be asymmetrical in that the old theory of musical thought consisting of statements alternating with appropriate responses is ignored and replaced by authoritative delivery of the player's own concept of what should happen yes Uh uh-huh so (laughs) I had to read that like four times to finally understand what it was saying um basically He's saying that Daryl ignored the status quo. Um, he did his own thing. And uh, personally, I think that's like a good thing in music, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure that the way they worded it sounds exactly positive. Like even after I read it a couple times, I literally was like, okay, I'm still getting like bad connotations from this, but it's fine. So in 1984, Pantera released their second album titled Projects in the Jungle. This album was still mildly glam metal, but started to slip away from it. And in 1985, the band released I Am The Night, which was slightly heavier than the last two. So they're starting to uh, slip farther and farther away from the glam metal genre. Um, This progression into heavy metal caused more people in the heavy metal community to take notice of the band. Around 25,000 copies of I Am The Night were sold. So 1986 and 87 were very influential years on the Abbott Brothers and on Pantera as a whole. Uh, Metallica released Master of Puppets, Slayer released Rain in Blood, Anthrax released Among the Living, and Megadeth released Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? All of which would prove to be very influential in shaping Pantera's sound in the coming years. But... Terry Glaze, good old Terry Glaze, uh, he didn't want to make the shift towards a heavier sound. He, like, was into the glam metal. He liked it. He wanted to be, like, Bon Jovi and, like, Journey. He wanted to be like that. He said he, quote, didn't like it as well if the guitar was the main thing, like the Metallica songs. Well, newsflash, bud. Lots of people do like that (laughs) style. But he didn't. So he dipped in 1986. Bye. Bye. So, in their search for Glaze's replacement, they auditioned Matt Lamour, who was apparently a David Coverdale lookalike. For those of you who are not well-versed in 70s and 80s rock bands, first of all, it's okay. I'm not either. I had to look him up, too. But David Coverdale, Coverdale, damn it, David Coverdale is the lead singer of Whitesnake. If you don't know who Whitesnake is, I can't help you. Sorry. Look him up. So, Matt Lamour performed with Pantera for a couple shows in L.A. in 1986, but it was quickly realized that Matt just couldn't hit the high notes. Oof. So, he dipped, too. Poor Matt. Uh-huh. They took in Rick Mythiason. My Mythiason. Mythiason? Mythiason? I don't fucking know. Rick. For Rick. a minute. <laughs> But he, quote, failed to adapt to the Southern culture of the other members. So he got the boot, too. A former classmate of Vinny and Daryl's joined, too. And his name was David Peacock. What? 
the fuck? He worked on most of the fourth album with the band, but eventually got the boot because his vocal style didn't fit in the musical direction that Rex and the Brothers envisioned for Pantera. I don't know why they didn't just call the band Rex and the Brothers. That's pretty cool. That's a cool ass name. That's a cool ass name. Anyways. So basically they went through a ton of lead singers after Terry Glaze left. But eventually, they auditioned the 18-year-old Phil Anselmo, Anselmo, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say it. He was hired on the spot, so he was, like, real fucking good. This lineup signed a with a new label called Gold Mountain Records, but quickly left them oh, because this label company, quote, wanted to change our style and make us sound like Bon Jovi, which is not quite up our alley. Can you imagine if Pantera's sound was, like, Bon Jovi. Can you imagine walk in the Bon Jovi style? No. It hurts my brain. Anyways, the band's fourth studio album, Power Metal, was released in 1988 and further pushed the band away from its glam metal origins. This album was also released under Metal Magic Records, and stylistically this album was a mix of glam metal and thrash metal. We're gonna get into a lot of metals here. So, um, Anselmo, Anselmo, I'm going to call him Anselmo, and I'm not sorry about it. Anselmo brought a, quote, rougher around the edges style to the vocals, allowing the band to push towards their desired sound. This album was the catalyst in making the band change their image and sound entirely. (laughs) In a band meeting when considering this change, Vinny said about their spandex outfits, quote, These magic clothes don't play music. We do. Let's just go out there and be comfortable. Jeans, t-shirt, whatever. And see see where it goes. These magic clothes. These spandex. Whatever. So um, now, after this meeting, they're now identifying as groove metal. Mm. So we, they started glam. They moved into thrash. And now they're groove metal. So they put their previous four albums to the side and like literally just ignored them. Today these albums are not listed on the band's website and they are extremely hard to find making them collector's items. They were just like it was a phase we're moving on we're gonna delete all of these pictures from my early middle school years and pretend that they never happened. Okay? I'ma find them. (laughs) But I didn't actually try to. So after Power Metal was released Megadeth called up so-called Diamond Daryl and asked him to join their band as their guitarist. Remember that Megadeth is one of his like idols. Like mm-hmm. he looks up to these band, this band. So um, Daryl asked him that his brother could also join him, but Megadeth had already hired a new drummer, so Daryl declined the offer. He told them that he couldn't be in their band in his favorite band because they wouldn't let his brother join. Oh my god, their freaking relationship just hurts me. I wish my brothers liked me like that. Me do. So after some time searching for a big name record label to sign them, they were rejected by Metal Blade Records. As well as uh, many others, they were turned down, quote, 28 times by every major label on the face of the earth. Uh, They were eventually able to sign with Atco Records after talent scout Mark Ross was impressed by the band at a live show. So Pantera's quote-unquote first album was released on July 24th, 1990. It was titled Cowboys from Hell. By 1993, this album was certified gold and certified platinum by 1997. 
And so the Pantera that we all know and love was born. They went through a phase, they realized that it was a phase, and they came out reborn, and they're a new person. Oh, here we go. So they embarked on the Cowboys (coughs) from Hal Hal (coughs) tour alongside Exodus and Suicidal Tendencies. They toured for nearly two years to promote their first quote-unquote first album. They were also able to open for Judas Priest on their first show in Europe. They opened for a ton of big-name rock bands, including ACDC and Metallica. Nice. Yeah, yep. So (laughs) Sweet Baby Daryl is just getting to meet all of his his favorite like childhood bands and also perform with his childhood heroes. I would shit a brick. I would like literally not know what to do with myself. What? How? Who? How are you supposed to like maintain composure when you're meeting and performing with some of your favorite people on the planet? Yes. I don't know. Anyways, this is probably why I'm not famous because if I ever met like someone that I absolutely adored, I would probably just fall on the ground and just like worship the ground that they walked on. I it's did fine. that once. With who? Colton Dixon. I don't know who that is. He was on American Idol. He's a Christian singer. But I just thought he was like really cute and I just really loved his voice because let me tell you, if you get have sex with a voice, <laughs> ooh, his voice was so good. Okay. So recorded in two months, the band's second album, Vulgar Display of Power, was released on February 25th, 1992. This album simply refined the band's signature groove metal sound. Anselmo's vocals got more shouty, Daryl's riffs got more intricate, and Vinny's drumming got faster. I don't know where Rex falls in that. He just got more bassy. I don't fucking know. This album debuted at number 44 on the Billboard 200, and it stayed on the chart for 79 weeks. That is over a year and a half, people. It was on the fucking chart for two and a half, for 79 weeks, for almost two, almost two years. Dang. Yeah, that's insane. So it was around this time that Daryl changed his image and his name. Feeling that Diamond Daryl didn't fit the band's image or sound anymore, he changed his name to Dimebag Daryl. He began sporting a dyed goatee, a razor blade pendant, cargo shorts, and sleeveless shirts. Yes, his new stage name did have... Everything to do with weed. I love that. Yes. It just like, I read that it just like, he refused <laughs> to carry anything more than a dime bag on his person because that way, when, if he ever got caught with it, he wouldn't go to jail mm-hmm. for like a bunch of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, you're smart. So their third studio album, Far Beyond Driven, was released on March 22nd, 1994 and debuted at number one on the US and the Australian charts. Their single, I'm Broken, won the band's first Grammy nomination for Best Metal Performance in 1995. The original artwork for this album was a drill bit impaling an anus. I have to go. (laughs) (laughs) That's a girl. So, um, it was banned. Obviously, you can't have that shit in the United States. It was banned. (laughs) They banned the artwork. I can't. So, um, instead, they changed the cover to a drill bit impaling a skull. So, um, tell me, just one thing, one thing. Tell me why Nirvana can have a whole ass baby penis on their album cover, but Pantera can't have a drill impaling a butthole? Because children pornography is fine to the world, apparently. I guess. I hate it here. I hate it here. Anyways, it's fine. (laughs) 
So, at a Monsters of Rock concert on June 4th, 1994, the Abbott brothers got into it with one of the journalists, journalists, I can speak, from Kerrang! magazine over an unflattering cartoon picture of Vinny. Later, I could not find this picture. I'm going to do some more searching, though. Later that same month, Anselmo was charged with assault for attacking a security guard who prevented fans from climbing on stage. He was released on bail in... And in May of 1995, he apologized in court and pleaded guilty to attempted assault. He had to do 100 hours of community service. That's it. For assault. So Anselmo was pretty heavily involved into alcohol, painkillers, and heroin around this time because he suffered from chronic back pain. I also suffer from chronic back pain. But listen, I don't do heroin about it. Thanks. When the band toured, um, Anselmo would often isolate himself from the rest of the band, even taking his own tour bus. This led to the band's fourth album, The Great Southern Trend Kill, to be recorded separately. The brothers and Rex recorded at a studio in Daryl's Backyards. Backyard. Backyards. Yeah, more than one backyard. <laughs> My, he was rich as fuck. Right. While Anselmo recorded in New Orleans. They recorded in separate studios. Yes. Because this guy was such a dick. It's fine. Despite this being recorded separately, the band's fourth album was released on May 7th, 1996. It peaked at number four on the Billboard 200 and stayed on the chart for 13 weeks. This is considered the band's most extreme work. The tour for this album only drove a larger wedge between the band members. Um, Vinny later said that recording for their next album was difficult. Quote, it was like pulling teeth to get Anselmo down to the studio. He didn't like any of the material, and it was always just, like, this headbutting contest. Another huge incident that happened during the recording of this album was the Abbott's mother, Carolyn, was diagnosed with lung cancer, and she died six weeks later. Regardless, the band released their fifth album, Reinventing the Steel, on March 21st of 2000. This album also peaked at number four. So, let's flash forward to September 11th, 2001. Pantera was scheduled to begin a European tour, but for obvious reasons, the tour was canceled and the band went home to Texas. Um, This is when the band decided to take a break for a while. And during this break, Anselmo's two side projects released a bunch of albums and did a bunch of tours, so he was busy with other things. The Abbott brothers believed that Pantera would regroup after all this settled down with his side projects, but Daryl got a phone call from Rex. Rex said that he would not be returning to the band. Pantera marked their disbanding by releasing a Greatest Hits album on September 23rd, 2003. I promise I'm almost done. This band was just so prolific in this genre, and Dimebag Daryl's death was like, it shook the whole entire rock community. So Vinny and Daryl decided to start up another band called Damage Plan. Patrick Lachman, Lachman, I don't know, was their vocalist. And Bob Kakaha. <laughs> K-A-K-A-H-A, Kakaka, Kakaha, I don't fucking know, whatever, was their bassist. They signed with Elektra Records in 2003. Their debut album, New Found Power, was released in February of 2004, but it did not compare to the success of Pantera's album releases. Damage Plan embarked on their aptly named Devastation Across the Nation tour in 2004. That name will be uh, very foreshadowy i can't think of a word whatever they shouldn't have called it that 
Anyways, so um, after the Devastation Across the Nation tour, they did plan on making a second album, but unfortunately they were never able to because on December 8th, 2004, Damage Plan was performing at the Al Rosa Villa nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. A crazy fucking fan, Nathan Gale, rushed onto the stage during the band's first song. He shot Dimebag Darrow multiple times with a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. The band's head of security tackled Gale, but was also shot in the struggle. Another fan who was attempting to help the fallen musician and security guard, Nathan Bray, was also shot and killed. An employee of the venue was also shot and killed trying to disarm Gale while he was reloading. He was, he reloaded. He shot so many fucking bullets that he had to reload. Three other people were seriously wounded before a Columbus police officer came in and shot Gale once in the head with a 12-gauge shotgun. Four people were dead. Three people wounded. Four people dead at the hand of this stupid fucker. Yes. When, when, when did he die? December 8th. 2004. What? You know who else died December 8th? Who? Juice and John Lennon. Oh, fuck! (laughs) Oh my god! Yeah. December 8th is cursed. (laughs) Cursed. Yeah. Yeah. God damn. What year was John Lennon shot? Oh, 1980. Okay. So 24 years. Ooh, the irony. Okay, uh, Dimebag Daryl was pronounced dead at the scene. He was 38 years old. Thousands of fans attended his memorial. Big name artists and probably friends of Daryl's included Eddie Van Halen, Zach Weil, Corey Taylor, Jerry Cantrell, and Dino Cazares were in attendance. (sighs) Are you ready to cry? Gene Simmons of Kiss donated a Kiss casket, which was literally decorated like with KISS stuff. And Eddie Van Halen donated his black and yellow striped Charvel bumblebee guitar to be buried with Daryl. It gets worse. Apparently, Daryl had met Eddie Van Halen a few weeks prior to his death and had asked for a replica of the bumblebee. At I the literally funeral, have goosebumps. Oh, wait. At the funeral, Eddie said, quote, Dime was an original, and only an original deserves the original. I'm not crying. You are. I have I have to actually go. I need time to cope with this. Why are people like this? Why do they just make me cry? Why why am I like this? Why do I cry? Because there's some good people in the world. <sighs> Fucking Christ. Not many, but some. So, Daryl was buried next to his mother Carolyn in Moore Memorial Gardens Cemetery in Arlington, Texas. When Vinnie Paul died in 2018, he was also buried next to Daryl and Carolyn, also in a kiss casket. So, um, I know I usually finish with a quote, but instead I'm going to tell you what Dimebag Daryl's last words were. Okay. His last words before his death were Van Halen. Why? Because this is what Daryl and Vinny would say to each other before a performance to inspire them to play a great show. It's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, I have to go. Same. <laughs> Same. I'm already crying. Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. All the sniffles, all the tears, we're good. Everything's fine. All right. Let's do some conspiracies. Yes. Come Girl, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, the answer is no. Neither of us are ever okay. Ever. No, never. Never. Some conspiracies. 
Okay. There we go. <laughs> okay, so there was a rumor saying that that, that Phil... Anselmo? Sure. Guy was secretly in contact with Nathan Gale because <gasps> Phil was angry about... Did they... Okay, so like, did they... I'm sorry if I just did not even notice notice that. Did they... Did, they, did Daryl split? No. Um. They took that hiatus after... 911. Mm-hmm. They took that hiatus and then Phil Anselmo was working with his two side projects doing albums <laughs> and tours with their his two side projects. Mm-hmm. And then one day Rex called Daryl and Vinny and said, "Hey man, I'm not coming back to the band." So that's mm-hmm. when they decided that they were just done. Oh, okay. So it wasn't really anyone's fault. Mm-hmm. So this conspiracy doesn't even make sense now. Um, basically, they just said that Phil was angry about like the split, and for some reason, I guess this person thinks that Phil just automatically like pinpointed Daryl and was like, "I'm a, I'm a kill you," but like not me, but I'm a, I'm a contact a guy to kill you. I mean, that was quickly debunked, obviously, but right. I can see why it's a conspiracy, though. Like, people, we've said it a bunch of times, you have to blame someone mm-hmm. when something like this happens, and it just seemed like um, Phil Anselmo was the, not best, but he was the quickest option for people to jump to. Right. All right, so this one. This one made me chuckle last night. All right, let's hear it. Um, so the U.S. government killed Dimebag Daryl. Okay. Because of his name? No. Oh, damn. I tried. Um, and this, this article was written by Randy Rocket Cody. Who the fuck? Don't know. Just, he's proudly writing this article. Might as well shout him out. All right. There you go, Randy Rocket Cody. (laughs) But this guy explains how he believes Dimebag Daryl was a victim to a top secret MK Ultra project. Okay. And if you don't know what that is, Project MK Ultra was the code name of an illegal human experimentation program designed to under designed and undertaken by the CIA. Which I looked that up because this guy did not explain what MK Ultra yeah. was. So if you guys really want to know more about MK Ultra, <clears throat> Bailey Sarian let she just did an episode of her podcast Dark History. Um, she just covered MK Ultra a couple weeks ago, so. Yeah, so, like, when I was reading this article, I didn't, after I got done, that's when I looked it up, because I was like, is this guy just spewing bullshit, or is no, this an actual it's thing? it's a legit thing. So, I looked it up, and I was like, alright, this guy makes a little more sense. So, I mean, I don't believe, I don't know. I don't believe it, but. Alright, just let's, listen. Let's hear it, let's hear it. So, and it's said that they would give people LSD or other psychedelic drugs to make them, confu- like, confess things, so. Kind of like mind control. Yeah, like a like a truth serum type. Yeah. And um, so this person believes that this project was based on mind control, obviously, and that Dimebag Daryl was a test run. So this uh, MK Ultra project actually started in 1953 and was halted in 1973. Quote, unquote, halted. Yes. Supposedly they stopped it. Yes. And um, this person believes that ever since then, all the shootings around the U.S. were just... Used for mind control. Okay. Wait. Okay, wait. Uh, Mm -hmm. All... Wait. Say that sentence one more time. Okay, so this person believes that ever since then, all the shootings around the U.S. were just used for mind control. So people do shootings because the government is trying to mind control us through something. I don't 
No. So what? They're just like fucking slipping us some LSD in our fucking hamburgers and then we just shoot people? That's how that works? What is your face? Why are you looking at me like that? I mean... Okay. Okay. I mean, there has been shit like that where they do. I mean, I'm just... Okay. I'm not trying to offend it, but... I wouldn't put it past the government to push LSD in our hamburgers to try to get us to fucking do whatever the fuck they want to. But to shoot people, they want us to kill people. What? What? Yeah, we're overpopulated. Okay. Well, whatever. We're overpopulated. So fucking what? Why are we killing the famous people? I don't know. Why not? Because... Why are we killing the elite? Elite. Um, and they believe that Nathan Gale was a secret assassin for the CIA. They explained that Dimebag. <laughs> they explained that Dimebag's killing was a perfectly orchestrated mind control operation. I'll quote. That's exactly what this guy said. I just okay. Keep going. And if you, me, and the world doesn't believe this guy with all the proof that he has laid before us, we are the ones with the mind control. Like we have already been controlled. Oh my god! And he is safe. Um. And we are in a zombie-like trance of MK Ultra themselves. What is this guy smoking? Can I have some? Exactly. Like, listen, I'm not even I'm making not. fun of this dude. Like, I love this. He's on LSD. That's how he came up with this fucking theory. He's on LSD. But, or, like, shrooms or something. Um, <clears throat> I will say this person went on to, like, bringing in the bushes, Alice in Chains, the Beatles, and Johnny Depp. This... Literally, like, if I went through this whole ass conspiracy, we would be here for, like, two hours. So, like, I'm going to send you the link. I would advise a lot of people to read it because, like, it's very interesting, honestly, what this guy is, like, you know, saying. But that was just, I just took that bit because it was really mostly about, like, Dimebag Daryl, just that little snippet of, like, the mind control. So, basically, this guy just thinks that maybe, like, the project like halted in 1973 and then came out and was like, we want to start this shit back up. Okay. And Dimebag Daryl was the first fucking person. So, MK Ultra, yes, it quote unquote ended, but the government is capable of keeping secrets from us. Like, obviously, yeah. fucking Area 51. Yeah. But they, UFOs, and now they're all yeah. of a sudden saying, oh, hey, yeah, there's UFOs. Exactly. <laughs> they are more than capable of keeping secrets from us. Just like the fucking, um, God, the one project that they were working on, the operation with, um, ah, with the Black Panthers. Do you remember when we were talking about Tupac and I, they had that one organization thing that was supposed to, like, keep all of those, those organizations at bay, but then they ended up just, like, fucking killing them. Mm -hmm. Whatever. So, that. But also, there's been, like, plenty of, quote-unquote, operations about, like, around JFK and Mm -hmm. around the Cuban Missile Crisis and, like, everything. Like, everything. Right. The freaking Bay of Pigs invasion. Whatever. I'm just... The government is perfect. pig invasion. The Bay of Pigs invasion. It was... There was flying pigs. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) JFK sent armies to invade this place and it was a complete shit show. And there was pigs? No. Nothing about pigs? The place is called Bay of Pigs. Oh. I was excited about pigs. Listen, I'm really heavily into the JFK um, conspiracies. They're, like, some of my favorite. Because they're so fucking, like, 
intertwined. It's insane. Nice. Insane. They're so, so yeah. cool. I'm going to have to look up on this shit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a whole, on ParCast, there's like a whole, um, it's not really a podcast. It's like they pulled a bunch of different episodes from a bunch because ParCast is like a network. So they've got a bunch of different podcast mm-hmm. shows under their network. So they pulled a bunch of different episodes from a bunch of different shows and put it into one like the Kennedys. It's really fucking interesting. But yeah, if you ever want to get heavy into some conspiracies one day, look up the Kennedys from Parcast Network. It's really fucking good. I'm going to do that. So um, yeah. Anyways, the government is perfectly capable of hiding shit from us and I wouldn't put it past them to have opened this back up. But unfortunately, there have been so many incidences where crazed fans or even not fans have murdered their quote unquote idols. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's what it was. Right. At all. Like, by any stretch of the word, I don't think so. I do, however, lean a little bit towards the Paul and Selma theory. Like, I don't think, I don't really know if he intentionally, like, it's not like he hired a hitman, but I do feel as though he might have been expressing expressing some sort of like anger or resentment or whatever mm-hmm. like to the public and then maybe one of his fans just like took it upon himself to fuck shit up. You know what I mean? Right. Like I don't think I don't think he did it. I don't think Phil did it intentionally. I think it just like happened. Like he I don't know. I don't right. know how what I'm trying to say, but I don't know. We also, um, for the listeners who don't know this behind the scenes shit, so when we were, when Erica was looking for some conspiracies, she found this one and she was like, Caitlin, I can't, this fucking, it doesn't make any sense. I need you to read it and like try to understand it so we can explain it together. So I, I read it through it and, um, it's a bunch of gibberish. This guy is like, grasping at straws left and right trying to make this into a conspiracy so I'm just gonna like read you a paragraph from this conspiracy and then we're gonna talk about how yeah it is okay (laughs) exactly so quote through the city's name Columbus we are also that's so this talking about the place that he was shot that Dimebag Daryl was shot Through the city's name, Columbus, we are also guided back to the starting point of the 2004 Omen the Super Bowl on the anniversary of the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. So apparently the Super Bowl, the 2004 Super Bowl took place on the anniversary that a um, space shuttle crashed. So as well as to the November 2nd election for which Columbus, Ohio, became the most important capital and state in terms of the Electoral College. This connection is intensified by Pantera being an Italian Spanish word for panther. Since the Super Bowl in 2004 was between the Patriots and the Panthers and the game was held in Texas where the Pantera guys were based. So basically, this guy, this conspiracy theorist, is trying real hard to turn this into a conspiracy stating that Dimebag Daryl's death was a ritual. He, like, brings in the Egyptian sun god and, like, all sorts of crazy shit that I could not understand. Oh, it's crazy. 
I literally like was reading it out loud and then there were like some like windows of time that like certain things had to happen because it led to all all this shit in history was leading up to Dimebag Daryl's death in Columbus, Ohio on December 8th of 2004. Yes. Everything historically was leading up to that very specific point in time. And um, it's a little crazy. Genuinely couldn't understand it. Really don't know how this person wrote it. Me neither. Where, like, he literally had to have the, like, board with the red string. And he's, oh my like, God. pointing yes. and, like, and this and that. And, oh, and the word and the origin of this word and this window of time. And, and dime back, Daryl, was a ritual. Like, bro, chill, chill. Anyways, so, um, what do you think? But which, which one do you? I'm, I just, you know. I think, I think it was just a sad thing that someone did. They just woke up one day and was like, hey, I'm going to the con- this concert and this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> I don't think that it was orchestrated by the government or by Phil and Selmo. I think it just happened. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it happens. Crazy fans, like, they exist. People who hate people. Mm-hmm. I mean, fucking Webs- West- Webs- Westboro Baptist. Like, sure, they don't shoot and kill people, but they, like, hate people so much that they do unbelievably disgusting things like mm-hmm. it just happens you know it's it is what it is but rest in peace Dimebag Daryl and Vinnie Paul Pantera was one of the greats one of the greats and we're very sad but also very grateful that they were as talented as they were and they were as popular as they were and I will be searching for their very first four glam metal <laughs> albums <laughs> it's happening let's see I have a uh, sign on my wall that says a bunch of different genres of music. Let's see if we can find any of these. Glam rock. Found it. Goth metal. Thrash. There's thrash. Wow. See, we need groove metal yet. Can't Mm -mm. find it. I don't see it. I don't see no groove metal. All right. Well. Goodbye forever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Bye. Thank you for listening to Murder on the Music Scene. Our cover art and our music and editing is done by Caitlin Anderson. Check out our website at murderonthemusicscene.com and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Murder on the Music Scene. If you have suggestions or comments, email us at murderonthemusicscene at gmail.com. All of our episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. If you would like to support us, you can become a patron on Patreon. Just search Murder on the Music Scene or use the link on our website. Make sure to join us next time for another conspiracy-filled episode of Murder on the Music Scene.